Well, good evening, everyone. We are going to go ahead and take our offering as we normally do at this time of the service. So I'll ask the ushers to come forward. Let me pray for our offering real quick. Father God, we pray, God, that you would bless this offering that we're about to receive, that you would multiply it to do great things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, while the ushers are uh, receiving the offering, I want to make a quick announcement regarding uh, this Sunday evening at 6.30. These little flyers are around the church. It's uh, Together We Worship, and it's really just kind of a family worship night, and that'll take place right here in the South Auditorium. So please bring your family, including your kids, and we will have a great night worshiping God together. Um, something also exciting to announce is uh, uh, Timber Kids, uh, of which I am the children's pastor of. Timber Kids is raising money the whole month of October for Timber Pigs. You like that? I thought of that myself. Timber Pigs. We're going to raise $3,500 for pigs for Cherish Uganda, which is the, the mission that Timber Kids have supported over the last three years. And we're doing that to expand their piggery over there. What they will do with those pigs is uh, raise them and sell them on the open market as a way of making some money and making them one step forward towards sustainability. So really, really excited about that. Well, let's go ahead and stand. We're going to do something a little bit different. Let's stand up and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed that will appear on the big screens. Uh, Read it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Well, that is something that we are actually going to do every Wednesday night for the next five weeks. Um... Because we are kicking off a new series titled, What is Christianity? Talk about a broad topic, right? What is Christianity? I mean, you could go a lot of different directions with this series. But over the next few weeks, we will look at what does it mean to be a Christian? And we are going to have a couple of guest speakers, such as myself. We're going to have Pastor Bob Seal come and speak one week. We'll have Pastor Tim Heist come and speak another week. And we do that as a way of coming alongside Pastor Brent and kind of sharing the teaching um, ministry with him. 
which you guys have experienced for many years with Brent's teaching, is that he speaks for roughly 50 minutes every single Wednesday. Well, the Sunday teaching guys, they get off really easy because they only speak about half the time. So we thought that we would kind of help Brent out, and I know that he appreciates that. Well, tonight, we're going to kick things off by looking at the Bible. And this afternoon, as uh, at about 4 o'clock, my 17-year-old son and I, we were driving home from the eye doctor, and I said, um, I said I'm, I'm speaking tonight in the adult service. And he said, oh, really? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm speaking on the Bible. He said, the, the Bible? You're speaking on the Bible? I said, yes, I'm speaking on the Bible. And he's like, where are you going to start with that? That's like speaking on the universe. Nobody can speak on the Bible. I said, shut up. I'm going to speak on the Bible. So darn it, I'm going to speak on the Bible tonight, all right? Um, now, this sounds pretty simple, I admit. Um, but it's important for all of us to know here is that Timberline Church is a Bible-believing church. Timberline believes in the authority of the Bible, and we live under that authority. Timberline Church believes in the inerrancy of the Bible. Timberline Church believes that the Bible is still as relevant today as it was the day that it was written. So those are the positions that we take corporately and that I come from as an individual. Almost everything that we as followers of Jesus know about God comes from reading the Bible. I say almost because God has revealed himself to us uh, by two different means, two different ways that God has com communicated to mankind over history. There's general revelation and then there's special revelation. General revelation are those things that we can learn about God through the created universe. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. So people can know and learn about God just by simply observing that which he has created. Now I have here on the screens, I have some other created things. And just by looking at these created things, we understand that there is a creator behind them. And so it is with our world. There is also special revelation. And that comes to us through things like angels, miracles, prophets, the person of Jesus Christ. And for us, what we're learning about tonight, the Bible. As far as books go in written history, the Bible stands alone as the most widely sold, most widely distributed, most widely read book of all time. Guinness Book of World Records tells us that 5 billion Bibles have been sold since the year 1815. Now, to give you an idea about how this compares with other, uh, other texts, I have on the screens the Koran. 
there's been 900 million copies of the Quran distributed around the world. And then there's uh, um, the works, quotations of the works of Mao Zedong. And there's 800 million of those. And that's an interesting work because beginning in 1965, that was required text to have in every household in China. When people or organizations put together all-time lists of books sold, most of the time they don't even include the Bible because it's just assumed that it is the most widely read, most widely distributed, most widely sold book of all time. Over 100 million Bibles are printed every single year. And this adds up in sales to a staggering $425 million. The whole Bible has been translated into 349 languages. Now, as impressive as, as all of this is, the Barna Research Group, which is this Christian sociological group, they exist to kind of capture what's going on within Christianity in America. And they offer some interesting statistics when it comes to reading the Bible in America. Nine in ten adults and teenagers claim to own a Bible. About one-third of all Americans read the Bible once a week. So we're going to do a little fun exercise. Open up your bulletins. There's three questions there. We're going to answer together. The first one, I have them on the big screens as well. The first one is just simply circle what do you believe regarding this first question. The Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Do you agree strongly, agree somewhat, disagree strongly, or disagree somewhat? The second question. How often do you read your Bible not including times here at church? Is that never, less than once a year, once or twice a year, three or four times a year, once a month, once a week, four times a week, or every day? Circle that. And then I want you to share your answer with your neighbor. Just kidding. (laughs) Just so you know where I fall, I probably read my Bible about three or four times a week. The comedian George Carlin, he said, uh, I was thinking about how people seem to read the Bible more as they get older. And then it dawned on me. They're cramming for their final exam. (laughs) All right. We got one more question here. Circle what you believe about the Bible. Is it the actual word of God and should be taken literally word for word? Is it the inspired word of God? That has no errors, but some verses are symbolic. Is it the inspired word of God that has some factual or historical errors? Or it's not inspired. It tells how writers understood the ways and principles of God. Or finally, is it just another book of teachings written by men that contains stories and advice? Well, that's kind of a fun exercise to do. I think when all is said and done, what people really want to know most about the Bible are two things. Is it true and can it be trusted? 
And is it relevant to my life today? So is it true? And can it be trusted? Dan Barker, the guy who founded the Freedom From Religion organization, he says this. You believe in a book that has talking animals, wizards, witches, demons, sticks turning into snakes, food falling from the sky, people walking on water, and all sorts of magical, absurd, and primitive stories, and you say that we are the ones that need help. HBO TV personality and opposer of all things Christian, Bill Maher, he says, I have a problem with people who take the Constitution loosely and the Bible literally. And then noted atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, he says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. And then, finally, Dan Brown, the famous author of The Da Vinci Code, he says... You can point to the alleged miracles of the Bible or any other religious text, but they are nothing but old stories fabricated by man and then exaggerated over time. Unfortunately, we all know people who share these same kind of opinions, don't we? And as I mentioned when I spoke here last spring, I had a friend of mine uh, in Portland. We met at the bipartisan cafe, which was anything but bipartisan. And there we talked about theological things. And uh, he told me that he had read the Bible from cover to cover. And what he came away with was believing that God was just this angry, schizophrenic nutcase who was a nice one minute but vengeful and angry the next. Jesus and the Bible were hardly truth to him. In fact, by the time he and I had met, he had rejected any notion that the God in the Bible was true. So, is it true? Is it true what these critics are saying? Is the Bible just cobbled together, exaggerated, revised, and translated over time? Or is it actually the true word of God? And can it be trusted? Those are great questions. And in my opinion, these are important questions that we have to get right. Because if it is true, then all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a secure guidebook to live by. A guidebook that can walk with us through the trials and triumphs of life. If it's not true, then we have to ask, what is true? Where can we look to find truth? Unfortunately, these days, more more and more people are looking to culture, celebrities, and increasingly to themselves. Lately, I've been reading this book, uh, a book called Good Faith by Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman. And in it, they write this. The broader culture has adopted self-fulfillment as its ultimate measure of moral good. 
the shift that is underway moves authority from outside of ourselves, for example, the Bible, to within us. Increasingly, Americans are rejecting external sources of moral authority, both spiritual and civic. Instead, what? The self has become the spiritual and moral compass for the vast majority of adults. So instead of there being this objective moral influence like the Bible in a person's life, that has now been replaced by the subjective self. What's true for you, hey, may not be true for me. Hey, if I'm not hurting anybody, what's the big idea? What's the problem? Clearly, with that kind of mindset, there isn't any room for an objective book like the Bible. Now, it's important to remember before we go on that there are other books that also lay claim to being true, to be in the inspired word of God. There's the Gita, a book that explains the core beliefs of Hinduism that supposedly was written by Lord Krishna himself. In Islam, we know of the Quran, which was supposedly given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel and is believed by over one billion Muslims to be the inspired word of God. There's also the Book of Mormon that was supposedly given to Joseph Smith by the angel Moroni. And as we learned from Brent's teaching series over the last month, Mormons around the world believe that that book is true. In fact, they believe it's the most perfect book ever written. So, the question is, how can all of these books lay claim to being the inspired word of God and being truth? Now, of those works that I just mentioned, it's important to remember that the Bible was written first. Written over a 1500 year period, with the oldest book being either Genesis or the book of Job. Most scholars believe that both of them were written around 1400 B.C. And then there's the most recent book authored by John, written in 95 A.D., the book of Revelation. It's important to remember that the Bible was composed by 40 different authors. So where you have the Koran and the Book of Mormon that were both authored by just one single person, the Bible has 40 different authors. And these authors come from varying backgrounds. Kings, fishermen, shepherds, tax collectors, tent makers, doctors, and a host of other backgrounds. In spite of the numerous authors, the main theme and the central character in both the Old and the New Testament is this Messiah figure, who we believe as Christians is the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is a foreshadowing of his coming, and the New Testament talks about his life, death, resurrection, and the formation of the early church. The Bible was composed in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Its authors lived on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. 
And the Bible that we hold in our hands today is comprised of 66 books. We have the first five books, the law, the Torah, or the Pentateuch. Those were authored by Moses. And those are followed by the historical books. That's followed by the books of poetry. Then the books of both the major and minor prophets close out the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the biographies of Jesus Christ. And then it goes into the book of Acts, which teaches us about the formation of the early church. That's followed by the Pauline letters or epistles. Those are followed by other epistles or letters not authored by Paul. And then the book, the Bible closes out with the book of Revelation. But how do we know? How do we know that's what, what is in this book is actually true? How do we know that it can be trusted? Well, the primary reason that we know scripture is true and can be trusted is because of the witness of Jesus Christ himself. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament 75 times. Now, that's not really not such a big deal. That's what you would expect a first century Jewish rabbi to do, to speak from the Old Testament. Why? Because there was no New Testament. Jesus spoke from the Old Testament. In quoting from the Old Testament, Jesus quoted from 27 of the 39 books that make up the Old Testament. And over a three-year period, as Jesus shared in conversation with his friends, he affirmed the historical existence of various Old Testament characters, such as Jonah. When he was sharing about what is going to happen in his death, he told his followers, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In describing his coming again, Jesus mentioned Noah. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And in sharing the God-ordained covenant of marriage, Jesus references Adam and Eve. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother. And be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but are now one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why would Jesus quote from something that wasn't true and could not be trusted? See, he wasn't using metaphors or parables to tell a particular truth in those instances. Instead, he was referencing actual historical figures and what happened to them. Jonah went into a large fish. 
Noah, he and his family escaped a cataclysmic worldwide flood by going into the ark. Real people, real events. Then finally, Jesus, post-resurrection, he says to his followers, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled as is written about me. Where? In the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets and the Psalms. So these are just a few examples of the witness of Jesus himself showing that the Bible is true and it can be trusted. But as we heard from our critics earlier, a common argument against the Bible is that it has been written and rewritten and rewritten over a long period of time. And because of that, a lot of the original meaning has been lost in translation to the point that what we have in our hands today is a mere fragment of what was originally written. And this is a common complaint brought to us by both Mormons and Muslims. And it was the primary reason for the creation of both of their texts. See, both believe that the original writings of Scripture had been corrupted. And that God had therefore provided a new revelation for them. These revelations led to the creation of the Quran and the Book of Mormon. The reality is that there is a 99.5% accuracy between the original text and any subsequent manuscripts. So how does this work? Well, to explain in the most simplistic way to help me understand what scholars do is they identify an original work of art. They then compare that work with any copies and what they're looking for. They want to know the period of time that is passed between the original and the earliest known copies. They also want to know, do they say the same thing? This is called textual criticism. See, as copies are made and time passes by, what often happens is that the things change. The text changes from the original to the copies. Now, in regards to the New Testament, there are over 24,000 either partial or whole copies of the New Testament. And as compared to other works of antiquity, the Bible is astoundingly accurate in staying true to the original and also the amount of copies that exist today. Now, I have this, uh, this chart up here on the screen, and I know it's kind of hard to read, but on the far left column, these are all authors and works from antiquity, meaning 2,000 to 3,000 years ago. So in the left-hand column, we, some of the notable people we would know are Caesar, 
Plato, Pliny the Younger, Aristotle, Homer. So we have them listed on the far left column. The next column over is the earliest recorded document that we have of them. When it was recorded. So you see Caesar at the top. It was recorded somewhere between 100 and 44 B.C. Uh, all the way down to the New Testament. There's a, there's a time frame there of A.D. 35 to 100 A.D. In the next column, this is important, is when was the earliest known copy made of that particular work? We can see the work of Caesar. The earliest work was in 900 A.D. With a time span between the original and the earliest copy of a thousand years. As you go down to the bottom where the New Testament is listed, you can see that the earliest known copy was created around 100 to 150 A.D. So there was a time span between the original and the earliest copy of 5 to 30 years. And then finally, the far right column, we see how many copies have survived. You can see that copies of the Greek New Testament, there's over 5,700 copies of those. And as it compares to any other work of antiquity, it just blows it in the dust. Now, for those of us sitting here and you're hearing this for the first time, you're probably going, wow, this is really amazing. And it is. But there are some of you who are here and you've heard this kind of talk before and you know what I'm going to say next. There's a big problem in what I just said. The problem is that no original text of any book in the Bible exists today. Not one. We have 24,000 either partial or whole manuscripts of the New Testament, 10,000 of the Old Testament, but not one original copy. Now, an original copy is called an autograph. So the obvious question is how can you compare the copies to the original when there is no original? Now, here's where textual criticism comes in and it gets really good. Scholars, what they do is they take these thousands of copies and they compare them to one another. The areas where there is agreement is called the original. The areas where there is no agreement, those are called variants. Now, I have to be honest with you. Two weeks ago, I've been working on this message for a couple weeks. Two weeks ago, I'm scratching my head with all of this. Variants, originals, originals are missing. Thousands of copies. What do I do with all this stuff? So I do what any of us on staff do. I go to Pastor Brent's office. Brent, Brent, you got to help me with this, man. 
And Donnie, come on in. What can I do for you? You know, Brent's a real casual, calm guy. He's our resident theologian. So you just walk in his office. You immediately feel smarter. So I go in his office. I have a seat and I tell him my predicament. And he proceeds to tell me about his aunt's goulash recipe. What? Brent, Brent, no, variants, original copies, thousands, things are missing. How am I going to convey this? And as he begins to tell me about his aunt's goulash recipe, it hits me. The same thing happened in my family with my grandma Mabel's graham cracker pie recipe. So here I go into Brent's office wanting to talk theology and we're sharing recipes. I mean, this is awesome, right? So it it clicks for me and I hope this kind of works for you in better understanding all of this. Okay? Um, If if it doesn't make sense to you, just shake your head like it is anyway. Okay? All right. So we have my grandma, Mabel. She made, Grandma Mabel has been gone for about 10 years now, sweetest woman ever. She made graham cracker pie. Anybody had graham cracker pie? That's it, Brent, I'm done. Not a single hand. Oh, back there, thank you. Those are the true Jesus followers back there. Graham cracker pie will change your life, people. My birthday is in a few weeks. Just throwing that out there. I never ask for a cake. I always ask for graham cracker pie. So, Grandma Mabel, she made graham cracker pie. She has the original recipe. Grandma Mabel, she had five children. Of whom my mom was one of them. And these children... Also had children. Four of the five had children. This one had one. My mom had myself and my brother. My aunt had four. Uh, This aunt had two. And this uncle, he did not, he was a smart one. He had no children. All of these people have copies of of grandma's graham cracker pie. The problem is that we do not have the original. So the original is missing. Nobody can find it. All that we have are copies. So... Where textual criticism comes in in regards to graham cracker pie recipe, I know that graham cracker pie takes a half cup of sugar. The recipes amongst the children and grandchildren, if those that, those that, uh, that have a half a cup of sugar in them, If more of them show half a cup of sugar, then that would be considered the original. But if you have this guy over here and he has 
12 cups of sugar, then you know that would be what's called a variant. Does everybody get this? Thank you for humoring me. It really made sense to me. Ants, goulash, and grandma's graham cracker pie. I'm just thinking anytime you can work food into a message, that's a win. Well, I hope that, I hope that that makes some sense to you. Sir Kenyon, Frederick Kenyon, director and principal librarian of the British Museum, And the foremost expert on ancient manuscripts, he says this. The interval between the dates of original composition of the New Testament and the earliest extant evidence or the earliest copy becomes so small so as in fact to be negligible. And the foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be firmly established. See, the reason that the Dead Sea Scrolls were such an important find is because they corroborated what we knew of Old Testament literature at that time. What experts found were copies of the Old Testament that predated any other copies that they had on hand. And it predated them by 1,000 years. What they found was that both manuscripts said the same thing. It hadn't changed. Now, obviously, there is a lot more that can be said about the reliability of Scripture. But I hope that this provides you with just a small bit of understanding that the Bible is true and it can be trusted. But is it relevant to our lives today? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, And training in righteousness. See, in this passage, Paul is writing about the relevant ways in which scripture can be useful in our everyday lives. Another translation of this passage reads, all scripture is God breathed. The usage of the word breathed or breath implies intimacy. To feel or to smell someone's breath means that you are close to them. In the scripture we read how God breathed the breath of life into Adam in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. We read where Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20 verse 22. So if we let it, scripture can be intimately involved in our daily lives. But as we learned earlier, not many of us, Read the scriptures to where we have an understanding of it enough to actually speak into our lives. And I'm not condemning. I'm totally get it. Reading scripture can be challenging at times. But allow me for just a minute to reiterate the importance of this book. What we have to remember is that the Bible is the story of God. And how he goes about redeeming mankind. 
A common thread of thought these days is why do I need to obey the teachings of a book that's thousands of years old? How is this book relevant to my life today? Well, the Bible is relevant to our lives today because it shows you and I how God revealed himself in the lives of people in the Bible. So we can learn something about God through any particular story in Scripture. And this is an important point to make. If you're like me, whenever I read a story in Scripture, I get caught up in the individual story that I'm reading. What I tend to do is forget that it isn't so much a story about that one particular person as much as it's a story about how God shows himself in that person's life. So when you and I are reading the story of Jonah, we're not reading so much about this guy Jonah as much as we're reading how much God cares about lost people as represented in the Assyrians. When you and I read the book of Isaiah, we're reading about how God loves his children so much that he disciplines them with the hope that they will turn back to him. See, this idea of story is important to remember as we read through the scriptures. Jesus himself, he knew the power of story. When Jesus was meeting with his followers and he wanted them to get a particular truth, he told a story. Why would he do that? Because he knew that we as people, we love a good story. Scripture is relevant today because the deep longings of the human heart hasn't changed since the beginning of time. Humans have always wrestled with belonging, with loneliness, with grief, with having to choose between right and wrong. And God's word speaks to those issues and countless others. So yes, scripture is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And it will be as relevant 2,000 years from now. Why? Because the human heart doesn't change. So scripture is the story of God. Secondly, it's important to remember that scripture is relevant today because God is the pursuer of people. One of my favorite Christian authors, Ken Geyer, in his book, The Divine Embrace, he writes this. When men think in terms of romantic relationship, they usually see themselves as the pursuer, not the one being pursued. But throughout the course of human history, God has been the pursuer. His love is an initiating love. Our role is to respond. We love, John tells us, because God first loved us. We pursue him because and only because God first pursued us. This pursuit began in the garden. Where after Adam's sin, Adam goes into hiding. The first question that God asks him is what? Where are you? God asking where are you implies that he is looking. And he was. And he is. And this I feel captures the very heart of God. His heart is to make right that which is wrong. 
When you and I get off the beaten path, when we get out into the weeds, God will pursue us and bring him back to him. Now, I'm embarrassed to admit, as the father of three children, I've lost all of my children several times in the courses of their lives. Anybody misplaced a child? Scariest thing ever, right? Right? You go into panic mode. You're like, you're frantically searching for your kid. About five years ago, we were living in Portland. And my youngest, Wyatt, at that point, he was three. He and I, we go grocery shopping. And we're having a great time in the frozen food area, checking out all the ice cream. And we have to move on. And uh, I thought we had moved on. Come to find out it was just me that had moved on. And I turn around and Wyatt is nowhere to be found. I start searching hell or high water. I'm looking through the chicken and the ice cream and the cereal. Mainly because I was afraid to go home and tell my wife I've lost Wyatt. But I was going to find Wyatt no matter what. I was not going home without Wyatt. And I wonder if that is how God is with us. See, this idea of searching, of pursuing, is found in the book of Luke, chapter 15, where Jesus, again, through story, he tells us about this God-pursuing love. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine out in the country? And go after the one that is lost until what? Until he finds it. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Again, through the power of story, Jesus illustrates How a loving God pursues his children. It illustrates why Jesus himself associated with known sinners. What did Jesus say? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Those who are lost. Those who are far from God. These illustrate, these stories illustrate how both God and angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner repents and turns to God. The Bible is true and it can be trusted. The Bible is relevant today because it is the story of God. The Bible shows us that God is the pursuer of people. There's no greater, uh, Act of this pursuit um, where we can corporately remember what God has done for us than when we partake in communion together. And that's what we're going to do right now.